Evening. I don't know if we're going to need this one. So I'll just get that where I can see you. Almost happy Sabbath. It's uh, good to... Oh, that really makes me feel good. They put a clock up there right when I start. Is that a subtle message or something? It's uh, very good to be here. I want to thank everybody who's been involved in organizing our time. I think that uh, it's a good vision to have more of these youth conferences. I've been very inspired by the GYC, and I think that the WYC will be part of that. Um, it's wonderful to see young people developing a passion for the message and for uh, getting it out to the world. Um, this week our theme, of course, is about being like Jesus, and that's what a Christian is. What is a Christian? Christian is a follower of Christ. The goal of a Christian is to be Christ-like, to be like Jesus. And in harmony with that, a springboard for our, our week is this verse in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5-7. through 7. And they have rationed different parts of this wonderful passage to the various speakers. You may want to turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, uh, and to brotherly kindness love. That those represent the attributes of the character of Jesus, and that is a very appropriate passage for us to focus on this week. I have the privilege of speaking on giving all diligence, and uh, that is a happy task for me because I really believe that diligence and passion in Christianity is one of the greatest needs right now. You know, in the last days, one of the uh, accusations that Jesus makes against the church says, you're just not hot or cold. You're a ho-hum. And there seems to be an absence of passion. We also see that a large number of young people drift out of the church. I believe part of the reason for that is going through the Christian experience growing up in the typical Seventh-day Adventist church experience. A lot of young people are exposed to uh, someone once put it this way, just enough Christianity to inoculate them against catching the real thing. And they need to see more zeal, more passion, more perseverance, more diligence in their faith. People who are sincere. Jesus was totally sold out about his mission in life. Matter of fact, even 12 years old, he goes to the temple after his parents lose track of him, they come three days later, they say, Son, we have sought you sorrowing. And he looked at them as though, Why were you looking all over for me, wondering where I would be? Of course I would be at the church. Where else would I be? Now I'm paraphrasing. Wist you not I must be about my father's business? Where else would I be? It'd be good for all of us to know the most, uh, the magnet to our souls is God and his work. Are you diligent about that? I thought it'd be good to look at some words and to start with the word diligence. Giving all diligence. Diligence, here in this passage, it represents earnest and persistent application to an undertaking. Steady effort. Attentive care. Heedfulness. There is a resolve, a determination, a tenacity, a passion, giving all diligence. Not just diligence, but a giving of all diligence. What do you think one of the most memorized passages in the Bible is? John 3.16, right? Would you all agree? You know what one of the most quoted passages in the Bible is? Judge not. A lot of people quote that. They don't even know where it is. But the most memorized verse is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave. Christianity, first and foremost, is about giving. 
It's about what God gives, which resonates in our souls. We love Him because He first loved us, and in turn, we give. And how much did God give? Oh, when He gave Jesus, He turned heaven upside down, shook it, and emptied it. I mean, when you give the Creator of all things, what more can you give than that? Can you think of anything more than the Creator of everything that you could give? Help me. Have you got any ideas? So when God gave the one who made everything to save us, he gave all. And then what does Jesus say it requires for us to follow him? Everything. Does that make you nervous? It does me. He who would seek to save his life will lose it. If you try to live for yourself, you're going to lose it. But whoever will lose his life, that means you let go, you give it all. For Christ's sake and the gospel, that's when you get everything. Amen. Giving all diligence. It's going to require everything. And, uh, you know, I don't believe anyone is going to regret that. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, verse... Jesus said to Peter, Peter said, uh, Lord, look, we've forsaken everything to follow you. What will we get? What's in it for us? And it's right. Remember, it says they forsook their nets and followed him. They forsook everything to follow him. And Jesus said, no man has forsaken father or mother or husband or wife or houses or lands for my sake in the gospel. But he shall receive, here's what you get, a hundred times more in this life and eternal life in the world to come. It's going to cost you everything, but you get much more. I mean, you can't even imagine how much more. So this man is uh, plowing a field that he's rented. And while he's plowing the field that he's rented, he runs into what he thinks is a rock. Well, that rock is going to be a problem in the future for his plow. So he goes to remove this large stone, but as he digs away the dirt to get to the stone, he finds that it's not a rock, it's a chest. And he digs a little more passionately now because he thinks this is something... You know, back then they didn't have banks and safety deposit boxes, and people used to bury their stuff in a field. If you read your Bibles, you remember a story where... Uh, Jehonadab said that uh, he ran into ten men that said, don't kill us, we've got treasure buried in the field. That's what they did. So it wasn't that uncommon to find somebody, you know, up here's gold country, who knows? If you start doing farming around Weimar, you could find a treasure buried. So he finds this box and he digs it up and he opens it and there's some sort of treasure. It could be gold, it could be silver, but it's treasure. But he doesn't own the field, and he's an honest man. He says, look, it's not my field yet, so I don't have the mineral rights. So he puts it back in the ground. He covers it up. He goes to the owner, and he says, I'd like to buy your field. How much is it going to cost? Well, the price is higher than he thought. He does some calculating. He realizes, I could buy that field, but it's going to take everything. Does he believe it's worth it? The treasure is worth much more than the field. So he goes home. He says, wife, we're having a garage sale. Then we're going to sell the garage and the house that is attached to it. She says, what are you, out of your mind? He says, trust me. Well, we're going to lose all our security. Trust me. It'll be worth it. That takes faith, doesn't it? And he sells, I bet it was a battle. Family and relatives say, these are family heirlooms. Why would you sell those? They're precious. He says, I found something worth more. Trust me. He is diligent about liquidating for the sake of obtaining that which is worth much more. And finally, when he gets the deed and his wife is crying, looking at the ramshackle house that's on this broken down farm, what have you done all of that for this? He says, come with me. And he walks her out into the field and he kicks aside the marker that he put there and he brushes aside the dirt and he pulls this great big box out of the ground, huffing and puffing, heavy box full of treasure opens it up and there it is gleaming in the setting sun and his wife's face is now beaming, right? Such a deal. Was it worth it? It's funny, the questions I get sometimes about um, Pastor Doug. When we get to heaven, will there be marriage in heaven? And it's almost as though they're saying, you know, if there's not going to I'm not married yet and I sure would like to get married before Jesus comes or I'll be disappointed. And you really think about that. That's crazy. And so anybody's going to go to heaven and say, you know, I probably would enjoy this place much more if I could have at least been married back in that, you know, 70 years that I lived back there on earth. 
And a billion years through eternity and bliss, you're thinking, you know, I probably would have enjoyed this more if I had just been married. <laughs> and if you should ever go into ministry, you're going to run into a lot of people who would think they would enjoy life a lot more if they had not gotten married. <laughs> so, I've met people. And it's, they say, you know, before Jesus comes, I'd like to do this and go there and do this and experience that as though heaven is going to be the big downer where all their joys cease. It is worth much more than anything. It is worth everything. Jesus isn't done yet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had, sold his whole pearl store and his pearl farm and all his pearls to get that one pearl because he recognized the value of it. I, you know, I do Amazing Facts uh, on a radio program Sunday and I collect them every week, which is a lot of fun actually. And I remember reading one that stands out in my mind. About two years ago, a man named uh, Alan, I don't remember his last name, in Rhode Island, an antique collector was going through one of these uh, thrift stores that had a basket of costume jewelry and he was rummaging around. He found a brooch in there that caught his eye. And he took it to the proprietor. He said, I found this back in your basket of junk jewelry. He says, what do you want for this brooch? And the guy looked at it quickly and said, $15. Well, it may have been $14, one of the two. But he recognized that it looked to him like a pearl. Now, they probably thought it was costume jewelry because it was a purple pearl, which doesn't look very normal. But there are very rare Quahog pearls that are purple. And sure enough, it wasn't just one. It was two pearls, unsurpassed in size and perfection, set in gold. And they didn't even recognize the gold. Well, he had it appraised. Christie's is going to auction it for $2 million. And he thinks that he's going to wait. He's going to take it on tour. It's called the Pearl of Venus or something. They've named it now. Taking it on tour. He recognized the value of it. $14. What a deal. Nothing that you give up in this life is even worthy to be compared with what Jesus gave up for you to have everlasting life. Nothing in this world that you might give up to follow Christ. And Ellen White says in the book Steps to Christ, she's ashamed to even write that some question giving up their sins. But I'm talking about even the allegedly good things we give up for Christ. Not even worthy to be compared with the glory of heaven. And, you know, people are going to trade eternal life for a string of pearls here when they're going to walk through one pearl there. I mean, you think about it. It's not worthy to be compared. Giving all diligence. What kind of diligence? A diligence that gives all. Are you sold out for your faith? You know, there are so many people who have the trappings of Christianity, but they don't have the real thing, and they don't enjoy their religion because they've never really surrendered everything. It's not until you really lay it all down and take up your cross, that's when you really begin to find out what it's all about. So many people, they attempt Christianity with half a heart. And the reason they're doing it is because, well, you know, they think there's some truth to it. And they, they, they want to be forgiven and relieved of their guilt and their shame. And they feel some conviction. And so they're find, trying to find some relief for themselves. But they've never really sold out to living just for God. A giving all kind of diligence. Luke 14.33 So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. No, I'm not advocating that everybody here is supposed to go home and liquidate your bank account and write a check to Weimar or Amazing Facts or 3ABN. Though we probably wouldn't argue fervently if you chose to do that, but this is not the theology that I'm talking about. Whatever you have, you lay it all on the altar. You give your heart. And by the way, if the Lord's got your heart, He's got everything else. You give Him your heart. You lay it all. You say, Lord, it's yours. Whatever you want, it's yours. I'm yours. My time, my means, my life, my influence, I'm giving it all diligently 
to serve you. That scares me. I mean, we're naturally selfish. That's the absolute diametric opposite of the way we're wired. We're wired to try and clutch and claw and grasp and hold. And the Bible is all about the opposite. It's giving it all away, living for the Lord, serving Him. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about your neighbor. And then you come in last. That's the reverse of the equation of the world, which says me first, then maybe others. And then if there's time, God. That's how most people prioritize their Christianity. By giving all diligence. Luke 5.11 So they brought their boats to land. They forsook all and followed him. When did they do that? Jesus said, look, you get excited about catching fish. And they were fishermen. And a big fish, they got excited. Told stories about it. Fishermen sit around the fire and they say, remember that one? I fought him for 20 minutes and I brought him in and broke the line and caught him again. And every time they tell the story, the fish gets bigger. That's proof of the power of the gospel that Jesus could take fishermen and make them honest. Right? And then Jesus fills Peter's net and James and John and Andrew's net to bursting. And he says, you get excited about catching fish. This is nothing. Just follow me, I'll tell you how to catch a man. How much better is a man than a sheep? How much better is a man than a fish? Sheep are worth more than fish in my estimation. They have more personality. <laughs> and sheep don't have much. <laughs> That's the comparison. God is saying, look, you know, we're, we're aiming too low. God wants us to be diligent about the big things in life. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about that kind of diligence. Hebrews chapter 6. I went through some of the passages in the Bible that talk about this diligence. That great chapter on faith, the kind of faith that Christ had, but without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Are you seeking after God diligently? If you'd be filled with God, if you would be like Jesus, it's a diligent search. It's something that requires intensity of effort. It requires energy. And frankly, the way that most Christians go about their personal devotions, well, most Christians don't have personal devotions. But among those who do have personal devotions, the way they approach it is not with diligence. It's sort of lukewarm, indifferent. I'm putting in my time. I'm reading my verse. Uh, a lot of people have a measured space that they read, and they read it. They said, I've done my religious duties. But they're not doing it diligently. Seeking after God is the most valuable thing in the world. I was in Alaska last week. Some of you who are at Central Church heard me tell my gold story. And uh, I went to a men's retreat. I was able to take Stephen up there with me. And uh, had a good time. A lot of the men up in Alaska, I've never been to a men's retreat quite like this before, where uh, everybody is packing a Bible and a pistol. And I was afraid to get into a theological debate with these guys because you didn't know what might happen. But uh, about half of these guys had mines and claims they were prospecting on the side. It was really funny because most of them were probably very successful in their businesses. They've got a high cost of living there in Alaska, and, and uh, some of them get very paid very well for their, their work and seem to be successful. But they'd work all day to find a little bitty gold nugget, and they might get, you know, a hundred dollars for it. If they'd stayed home and worked at their job, they made two hundred dollars. But they got so excited about prospecting, they'd search all day doing this back-breaking work, shoveling sand in a sluice and panning and hauling boulders around so they could find that little bit of gold, searching diligently. Something about gold fever. What's the most important thing you can find in life? 
what is the most important thing in life? I think it'd be God. I mean, finding God. People talk about the glories of heaven and Martin Luther said, don't even mention that to me. If nothing in heaven is there, if I could just be in the presence of God, that'll be heaven. Finding God. And you know, sometimes I think we do the children an injustice when we talk about heaven and we try to attract them with, you'll get to slide down the giraffe's neck. Just think, you'll be able to stick your head in a roaring lion's mouth and he won't hurt you. You'll be able to play with rattlesnakes and they'll be your toys. And you know, just like the gold and the toys and the butterflies and the flowers and won't heaven be wonderful? And yes, that's all nice, but I think we miss it when we tell them, won't it be something to be in the presence of your creator? To be able to look, to gaze in God's face. I mean, the Bible closes by trying to attract us with that statement, God himself will be with us. We are separated from God by sin. God will be with us. What could be more worthwhile than seeking after God? And what kind of search does it deserve? Giving all diligence. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek for him. That word diligently there. The Greek, by the way, is spude, is how you pronounce that. It means speed, dispatch, eagerness, earnestness, business, carefulness, forwardness, haste. It's something that's not only done thoroughly, it's done quickly. You notice those words in that were all built in there? all had to do with time. Don't be sloppy about it. My father used to always tell me, if I ask you to do something, don't wait because you're going to forget. It'll lose its priority. Do it as soon as you are able to do it. Giving all diligence. Seek after God. When? Why he may be found. When is that? Now. Some people think, I'm just going to wait until I have some terminal illness I'll live for the devil, and then I'll repent in time to get heaven too. A lot of young people think that way. You know, I'm young. If I become a Christian now, all of the thrills of the world, I mean, I won't really know what sin has to offer. So if I just sin a little bit now and enjoy it, and I know God's there and he's forgiving, and hopefully I'll survive my prodigal life, and then I can come back and I'll serve God with something that's left. But I'd like to get out there and find out what's really going on. Then, by the way, I'll understand what it means to share my testimony about how Jesus saved me from sin. So I better go out there and sin a little bit so I really have a testimony. I've heard these things almost verbatim. That's assuming that you know when the end is. And not all young people know that. Someone asked a rabbi one time, what's the best date to repent? He said, the last day of your life. They said, what if I don't know when that is? He said, exactly. <laughs> and Matthew Henry, speaking about the thief who was converted in the 11th hour, he said, there is one deathbed conversion mentioned in the Bible so that no one need lose hope, but there is only one so no one dare presume. It's very dangerous to think, I've got time. If you're going to seek after God, do it diligently. That means now. And that word means to the point of perspiration. Aerobically. I mean, in our terms, that's not in Strong's. Seeking after God to the point of perspiration. Diligently. Did Jesus, we want to be like Jesus. Did Jesus ever do it that way? Did he ever... Seek after God to the point of perspiration. Uh, so much so he perspired blood. You know, whenever I uh, sign books, one of my favorite verses is Jeremiah 29, principally verses 11 to 13, but I do it very quickly. Sometimes I just include verse 13, which is, You will search for me, and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. That will be diligently. God deserves a diligent search. From the book Christ Object Lessons 343, speaking of diligence, the prophet says here, Life is too solemn to be absorbed in temple and earthly matters, in a treadmill of care and anxiety, for the things that are but an atom in comparison with the things of eternal interest. Yet God has called us to serve him in the temple affairs of life. Diligence in this work is as much a part of true religion as is devotion. 
The Bible gives no endorsement to idleness. It is the greatest curse that affects our world. Every man and woman who is truly converted will be a diligent worker. So it's not just a diligence in seeking after God, but it's a diligence in everything you do. Because as a Christian, you're doing all things as unto Christ. So diligence of itself is something. You know, the Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, you know the rest of that? Do it with all your might. If you're going to serve God, then serve Him. Isn't that what Joshua says? Choose who you're going to serve. If you're going to serve the Lord, then serve Him. Isn't that what Elijah said? How long do you halt between two opinions? People kind of stagger back and forth between the world and the Lord. If you're going to serve the Lord, do it with all diligence. Do it with all your heart. You know, nothing, I think, will have a greater effect for revival in the church and for conversions in the world if more Christians were more earnest about their Christianity. If we were more consistent and sincere and diligent about our faith, if we weren't ashamed of it, tell people what we believe, to live what we believe, that would have a great impact for the conversions of others. But because we're half-hearted about it, it, I think, uh, erodes our influence. Being wholehearted. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. What deserves diligence more than our relationship with the Lord? Is it appropriate from time to time for us to evaluate what our spiritual health is? To carefully investigate? You know, we're all sort of spiritual diabetics that need to regularly evaluate our insulin levels. This is probably a good place to use that illustration. Maybe it's a bad place to use that illustration. I don't know. But uh, my brother, along with a number of other problems, he was a diabetic before he died, and he had to very carefully monitor his blood sugar. His was not so much because of obesity. He was certainly not obese. He was very thin. It was because of cystic fibrosis. But he had to constantly monitor his blood sugar to know where he stood and he would make adjustments accordingly. I think it's healthy for us. Now some will say that you're being works-oriented and it's all about focusing on yourself, but you can evaluate if you're looking at Jesus enough by where you are. Sometimes we can say, you know, I'm spending too much time with the things of the world and not enough time with Jesus. Something's wrong with my appetite. Be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Being diligent in our prayers. Talked a little bit about study and searching after God. You know, in the temple, there were, in the holy place, three pieces of furniture. I want some young person to tell me what they were. What are the three pieces of furniture in the holy place? Not the holy of holies, holy place. All right, someone name one of them. Candlestick, table of shoe bread, altar of incense. There are three parts of salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification. You're justified in the courtyard where you kill the lamb. You're sanctified in the holy place. You're glorified if you get into the presence of God in the holy of holies. Sanctification is where we are now. Once you accept Christ, you're in the wilderness. Children of Israel, three places. Justified in Egypt, sanctified in the wilderness, glorified in the promised land. That holy place had three pieces of furniture. Their sanctification happened in that room. Candlestick. Let your light so shine. You are to be a witness. That bread. The word of God. Jesus said man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word. That bread that came down from heaven is Christ, is the word. That's the Bible. And then there was that altar of incense. That represented prayer. Intercession. That spirit, that smoke, that fragrance went over into the presence of God, over the veil. And someone had to put something there, and then it was transformed into smoke. And it was brought into the presence of God. And when you pray, the Holy Spirit does something to transform your prayers and mingles it with the merits of Christ, and it is made sweet and brought before the Lord when you pray in Jesus' name, and it's acceptable to Him. We pray too little. And not only do we pray too little, there, you know, I think that God 
is more impressed by heartfelt prayer than long prayer. I've got a pet peeve about long prayer. Matter of fact, Jesus, didn't he ridicule the hypocrites? He said, you love to pray long prayers that you might be seen of men. I think your private prayers ought to be long. If they're going to be long ones, make them your private prayers. Your public prayers should be to the point. You read the public prayers in the Bible, the Lord's Prayer, 60 seconds, if that. Elijah prays a prayer. I tell you what, that was some prayer. Fire came down from heaven. Burn up the sacrifice, burn up the wood, burn up the rocks, and burn up the water. One man's prayer, he knelt on his knees. You read it sometimes, set your watch. I did this, I'm kind of a nut. I timed it. I thought, that was a powerful prayer. I wonder how long it took. 40 seconds. Uh, that's the long end. But you know what he made up for? What you might lack in length, you can make up for in diligence. Passion. His heart was in his prayer. I tell you what, when Peter was drowning, he prayed a prayer with three words. But I tell you what, he was passionate about that prayer. It was a life and death prayer. And the Lord read his passion and his desperation and his diligence and he answered, right? I mean, being sincere about it. And let's, let's face it, a lot of us in our prayers, we say the same thing over and over again. I strive in my family, during our family prayers, I'm, when I'm with the family, Karen does it of course when I'm not there, but or we pass it around among the kids, but uh, principally I pray and I don't want the kids to be bored with prayer. And so I really try to pray fresh prayers because one thing, God knows what I want before I ask. He's also heard me before. And I think at least I could be interesting. And so pray with passion, pray, pray with creativity and uh, say something fresh. I know that uh, in every church, you know, there are some people when they pray the prayer before the sermon, we all have these churches, we have these people, and it's almost like they've got a prayer memorized and they say the same prayer. It may be a good prayer, but it's the same one every time. You wonder how much passion is in there. How much diligence is in there. Not only did fire come down from heaven when Elijah prayed that 30-second prayer, then he went off to pray by himself. Remember what I said? They're the longer prayers. Ahab went up to eat and drink. Here's the king of Israel. Fires come down from heaven. God's manifested himself. And what does the king do? He ought to be fasting and praying now. He should be repenting. He goes to feast. Elijah goes up on the mountain and he kneels down. He puts his face between his knees and he prays. He bows down. And he prays. He tells his servant, go look towards the sea. He's praying for a specific thing. The people needed rain. He went and looked and said, there's nothing. So he sent him a second time. He said there was nothing. Seven times he said, go again. Now do you see a diligence there in his prayers? He knew that was God's will and he was not going to give up. The people needed the Holy Spirit. By the way, it's interesting that this youth conference is right in the midst of uh, sort of a grassroots prayer movement called Global Rain down at Central Church and about 1,700 churches around North America, I think some overseas. Your church family members are gathered praying right now. They're praying for the Holy Spirit. I'd love to see this meeting be a place where it is especially demonstrated that their prayers are being answered. And Elijah prayed. He said, Lord, send the rain. Send the rain. These people need rain. They need to know your God. It's one thing the fire comes down. Now we need the rain to come down. And finally, the seventh time he prays, it says, a small cloud about the size of a man's hand rose up out of the sea. In the meantime, the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. Did God hear his diligent prayer? What would have happened if Elijah had said, oh, well, hey, I did my best. May as well quit now, after five prayers. The story might have been different. We'll never know. The rain might not have been so intense. It could have been a light shower. But he was praying for something that would bring a drought to the end. They needed a flash flood. He kept praying. You know, people are passionate about praying for something that's important. Sometimes our prayers are sort of ho-hum. And then the doctor gives you a medical report that makes you very nervous. It's 
a lot easier to pray with all diligence at those times. Or you get a phone call that a loved one has had an accident and they're in ICU. Suddenly you can pray with all diligence. There's a passion, there's a tenacity in your prayers. Luke 18, verse 1. And he spoke a parable to them that men ought to always pray and not lose heart. Don't give up, don't stop short. There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear or God or regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Give justice for me for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I don't fear God or regard man, yet this widow troubles me. I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wears me out. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge says. Even an unjust judge is willing to help her out just to get her off his back. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. How much more God, who is just, who does care. This was an unjust judge who didn't care, but finally answered because of her diligence. When you know something's right, don't quit praying. I believe God blesses determination, perseverance, resolve, tenacity. God, God even blesses the lost when they're diligent. It's true. Thomas Edison was not a religious man, but he was successful because he didn't give up. There's a principle in life. How much better if that principle is used by Christians to be diligent about our faith? You know, there's another story in the Bible. Turn with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14. Elijah goes to heaven in a fiery chariot, but not so with Elisha. Elisha had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. There's a man who was tenacious. Wherever Elijah went, he said, I'm going with you. I'm not letting go. Where you go, I'm going to go. Followed him with a diligence. Finally got old. And uh, if you live long enough, you get old enough, and Jesus doesn't come, you'll probably die. I believe in the health message, but I just want you to be prepared for that. And Elisha became sick with the illness with which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him, and he wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said, Stop crying. I'm paraphrasing here. Take a bow and some arrows. And he took a bow and he took some arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on the bow. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands, signifying that that king was to trust God to guide him in his battle against their enemy. He said, Open the window east. He opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. You must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, this is that old sick nine prophet. He seems to have more fight than the king. Take the arrow. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. Now that word strike there, King James says smite. It means beat the ground. Take your quiver of arrows. Take a fistful of arrows. Beat the ground. So he struck the ground three times and stopped. And the man of God was wrong. He was angry with him. He said, you should have struck five or six times. At least twice as many times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you'll strike Syria only three times. They're going to still be around to torment you as an enemy because you quit too soon. You weren't diligent enough. My, um, let me tell you about my Uncle Harry. And I just, I, this is not in my notes, but it just came to me. But you'll remember this story. This is my father's brother, quite a character. Lost his eye. I mean, Uncle Harry did everything, even into an old man. He was rollerblading and water skiing and riding a horse. And he had the Indian trading post. I live with him. Some of you read my book. I live with Uncle Harry on the trading post in Nagisi, New Mexico. Rolled a horse, knocked out his eye, had a glass eye. And he'd tell his grandkids, he'd take his eye, he'd set it on the table. You've heard this before. He'd say, I'm leaving the room, but I'm watching you. 
And he put his eye there. Uncle Harry told me this story about Grandma Batchelor. The story is about Grandma Batchelor. She had four boys during the Depression. She worked for Levi Strauss making overalls. Did it all her life. She only had a few fingers on some hands because she sewed the other was off. Raising four boys during the Depression. My father was the oldest. Seven years old when his dad died. Three younger brothers. That woman was tough. And one day, Harry told me, he says, I made the mistake of talking back to your grandma. And I said, I'm 14 years old now, and I don't need to listen to you anymore, and you can't make me. She said, well, maybe not right now, but I could make you wish you listened to me. He said, he went to sleep one night, and they had these old spring metal frame beds. And while he was sleeping, the sleep of a full teenager, she tied his hands and feet to the bed. Then she went and got a broom. And he woke up to find his mother feeding him all up and down his body with a broomstick. He wakes up totally disoriented, yelping. I'm not recommending this. I just want to disappoint her. And she's just a little bitty lady, wired. And uh, she sat down huffing and puffing. And he's there just totally in shock. Still tied up to the bed. She said, I'm going to rest a minute. She said, and then I'm going to beat you some more. And she said, and you're never going to talk back to me again. And you know what Uncle Harry said? I didn't. <laughs> now, I think of that when I think about Elisha saying, you did not beat the ground often enough. It makes a difference. And it could have been that little time that she rested and got back up again that taught him that lesson. But, um, you know, I think we give up too soon. I don't think we take our faith far enough. How often, I wonder, we've missed blessings. God would have performed miracles for us if we would have used our extremity as an opportunity to go a little farther. Giving all diligence. You know, Spurgeon said something about prayer. Prayer pulls the rope down below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell or they ring it like it's a little dinner bell. For they pray so lazily. Others give only an occasional jerk on the rope. But he who communicates with heaven is a man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all of his weight. You know, picture Quasimodo ringing from, with all of his weight on a church bell. That's how we ought to be praying. You ever play ping pong? Okay, I'm not going to talk about it being a sin. You, just want, you ever play ping pong? You ever been hit by a ping pong ball and rushed to ICU? Not much danger of that, is there? And if I should right now have a machine gun that shot ping pong balls and fire away at you, you'd probably duck, but you wouldn't run. But if I had a cannon that fired bowling balls, would it be different? All right. Most of our prayers were praying like ping pong balls. We're praying, but they're light, and there just is not much to it where we ought to be praying like people who are living at the end of time. We should be diligent in our study. I talked about the witnessing, the bread. 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16. Be diligent, study, to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will only increase to more ungodliness. A lot of the reading that young people engage in is vain and idle babblings. Television, vain and idle babblings. Most of the videos and the movies and things that come from the world, vain and idle babblings. And we spend our times getting mixed up in the vain and idle, the fantasy and the babblings of the world, where we need to be studying diligently to show ourselves approved to God. Now, you've heard me say this before. If you've heard me, I say it a lot. We don't have enough time to study everything we need to study. 
We need to use every minute we have. I don't have enough time. I not only do my Bible study in the morning and listen to Bible tapes when I go to sleep at night, you go look in my car right now, you're going to see a bucket, literally. I've got a Tupperware bucket of tapes and CDs. I've got both. I still have cassette tapes I haven't heard yet. Somebody remember what cassette tapes were? <laughs> you know, I thought about buying a new car, but the new ones don't come with cassette tape players anymore, so I thought I better keep my car. <laughs> but uh, I've got to listen to tapes. I've got Christian stations on the radio, and granted, they're, they're not all Adventists, but they're Christian preachers, and so you eat the melon, you spit out the seeds, but I'm constantly trying to study, and you weed out the babblings that you hear, because in order to, to really saturate your soul with the things of God, it takes a lot of time. And especially now, you are living in a unique generation. You are living in a very unique generation. There has never been a generation like this generation. Think about something. A hundred years ago, if you wanted to hear music, you needed to know somebody who knew how to play it. You needed to go down by the country store and find someone on the front porch or you had to have some relative with a fiddle or a banjo or a saw or a harmonica that knew what to do with it. And they would make music or people sang without instruments and they could harmonize. Now, and singing was a special occasion. Might be a little bit, you know, at the end of the day or when you got together once a week and people at church sang because that was their music. Now, since uh, Thomas Edison invented a way to record and reproduce music, people can listen to music all day long, non-stop. But it's not just music. I stopped for some fast food, healthy fast food, on my way up here. I always feel self-conscious at Weimar. <laughs> and the fella, I heard this noise, and I thought, what is that noise? And I turned around, and this grown man in the seat behind me was trying to eat his food while he was playing a video game by himself. And he had one of these things that you could either watch. He was watching a movie first, and then he was playing a video game. Constant bombardment of information. The people are always, they can't just go to the gym now and lift weights or work out. They've got to listen to something or watch something while they're doing it. Because they might get bored for 60 seconds. Constantly being bombarded with information. So, to compensate for that assault to your senses, you need to make sure that you're at least getting more of God than the devil is getting your attention. Study diligently to show yourself approved to God. Testimonies chapter 5, I'm sorry, book 5, page 461. Vigilance and fidelity have been required of Christ's followers in every age. But now that we are standing upon the very verge of the eternal world, and if that was true when she wrote it, how much more true is it today? Holding the truths we do, having so great a light, so important a work, we must, catch this, double our diligence. It's always been important for Christians to be diligent about their faith. Now more than ever, we need to double our diligence, seeking after God. Luke chapter 15, verse 8. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. You take the word. And sweep the house with the act of diligence. And seek diligently till she find it. Seek diligently until she figures out it's not there. No. Seek diligently till she finds it. What does Jesus promise? Seek and what will happen? Seek, and you will find. You know, I've, I've shared this before. It's always inspired me, and I'd like to close by uh, sharing this passage with you. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all diligence. Protect what's going into your heart, what you're thinking about. For out of it are the issues of life. Out of it spring the issues of life. Guard your heart. Fill your heart with Jesus. You become like what you treasure in your heart. 
2 Peter 3.14 Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent, that you might be found of him in peace without spot or blameless. Here's what I want to read to you. It's anonymous. I haven't found who wrote it. If you know, tell me. I am a disciple of Jesus. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision have, has been made. I am a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence, learn by faith, love by patience, live by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide is reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let go, or slow up till I preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops, and when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. I like that. That talks about tenacity. I want to be like Jesus. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He would not be discouraged or let up his mission of coming to this world to save you and me. So my challenge for you is give. Give all. And give all diligently. Is that your desire? Let's bow our heads. Father, as we conclude this segment of our program, and we are challenged by the greatest of goals, to be like Jesus. Lord, you originally created man in your image. The devil has been working to erase that image from humanity. We know the work of the gospel is to restore that likeness of Christ in the sons and daughters of Adam. I pray, Lord, that will happen here. I pray that decisions will be made to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. Be with every subsequent speaker. I pray, Lord, that you'll be with this program, that your spirit will be felt. Remove every distraction and obstacle that would prevent people from giving all to Christ and then serving him diligently. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.